And yes, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for this time. And now we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19? And as we said last week, as we come to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation... We come to the end of the dark night of man's rebellion, a dark night that started in the Garden of Eden with man rebelling against God, and that has lasted for 6,000 years, and we finally now, in the narrative at least, come into the light of a new day. The dark night of man's rebellion is over. The light of a new day of Christ's return in the glorious kingdom age has come upon us. Uh, this day is prophesied about numerous times in both the Old and New Testament. Turn to Malachi, if you will, chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament. Give you a little flavor. There are dozens and dozens of passages. I'll just give you this one out of the Old Testament, speaking about this glorious new day that is coming. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So before... A new day of, of, of Christ's reign comes, there's going to be judgment. But then it says, but after the dark night of judgment uh, upon man's rebellion and his sin, then the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. I told you years ago, we had a guy in the church and we were talking about, um, you know, um, how that the Bible calls Jesus the Son. S-U-N. He says, oh, no, that's not true. So I took him to this passage in Malachi, and he said, oh, that has to be a typo. It's not a typo. The prophet is talking about the dawning of a new sun, S-U-N, a new day, the kingdom age. Uh, of course, that Messiah will reign, but shall arise with healing in his wings. That's because of the rays of the sun, in a sense, going forth throughout the entire planet and God working miracles of healings in people's lives. You can read Isaiah chapter 5 or 6, where it says, During the kingdom age, the mute will sing God's praises, the blind will see his glory, uh, the lame shall leap like a deer, uh, and, 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 the, and um, the mute or the deaf shall hear uh, the voice of God. During the millennial kingdom, there is going to be a healing for all those who uh, have handicaps and so on, right? Now, I'll give you one more out of Romans, chapter 13. And this one, of course, is spoken of directly to us living today in the New Testament times. Where Paul says in Romans 13, verse 11, And do this, knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The night of man's rebellion, 
The day is at hand, the day of Christ's return and his kingdom. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, as if the day has already come. Because for us it has. Christ is in our hearts, the son of righteousness, right? And uh, we are no longer of the evil night of this world, right? Uh, but let's start walking properly, Paul says, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's good words, especially as we are getting nearer and nearer to Christ's return. Things are getting worse and worse around us. Jesus told us that would happen, right? Um, and so now we need to let our light shine even more brightly because there are people that want hope that are more open than maybe ever before in their lives to hear the gospel. So let's live it so we can then share it as they um, are open to it, right? So in Revelation now, chapter 19, let's read the first 10 verses. Now after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God. All you who his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called according to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God. These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, well, John, apparently overcome with the excitement and emotion of the moment, falls at the feet of the angel showing him these things and begins to worship him, the angel. The angel responds, and I'm sure with a certain degree of horror, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus Worship God. That's kind of an interesting statement. We think of our testimonies as our story that led us from darkness into light, from unbelief to faith in Christ, right? You say, well, this angel's got a testimony. Does that mean he was once lost and now he's saved? The he's got the testimony of Jesus. I mean, can angels repent and be saved if they fall? No. Angels cannot repent and be saved. Why? Why can we repent and be saved, but angels cannot? Because with knowledge comes responsibility, and they are in the presence of God day and night. They know better, 
And so when Lucifer uh, rebelled and he, uh, uh, he tempted uh, the angels of heaven to follow him, and a third of the angels did, Revelation 12, right? Uh, a third of the angels followed him and became fallen angels. They can never be redeemed. They can never repent and go to heaven. So what is this testimony of this angel? You know, uh, he is one who has the testimony of Jesus. Look, the testimony of Jesus is simply that we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge he is King of kings, Lord of lords, God Almighty in human form. He is God. And that is our testimony. We didn't always have that testimony when we got before we got saved. I mean, I was raised... Uh, in, in church, and I did understand and believe that, but I didn't really make it a part of my life in the sense that Jesus really was my Lord, or he was really governing my life, right? I had a lot of head knowledge, and a lot of it was right. I believed he was the Son of God, Savior of the world, uh, second person of the Trinity, who died on the cross, rose again the third day from the dead. That's all good stuff, but the devil believes all of that because he was there to see it happen. There's a difference between knowing the facts about Jesus Christ, and then bowing the knee to him, making him your Savior and your Lord. Now, the good angels, those that didn't rebel against God, have always had that testimony that Jesus Christ is God, that he is worthy of honor and praise because he is God Almighty. They know he came down from heaven. They know he became a man to die for the sins of humanity. But their testimony has always been that he is God and he is worthy to be worshipped and they do worship him with their lives and obey everything God wants from them because angels, the good ones, are absolutely committed to God and obedient to all that he says. He is their king and they, they obey him. That's their testimony. It is ours too now. He is our king and we obey him now also. And may God give us grace to obey him more in everything. Right? Not just partial obedience or when we feel like it. But every, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Most of the words that come from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't get to pick and choose. Christianity is not like the sizzler salad bar. We just pick the stuff we like and leave the broccoli and everything else on the, on the counter there. You come to the word of God, it is a feast, but you have to take in all of it and apply it all, and by God's grace, live it all. Partial obedience is really not obedience. Uh, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not really Lord at all, right? So John was overwhelmed. We give John a break, okay? I mean, you know, John's a first century guy, for goodness sakes. Cut him a little slack. I mean, he was teleported. You know, he was beamed up, you know, from the first century <laughs> into the future from where we are even. Can you imagine? That's a, quite a bit to take in. You come from a first century agrarian culture, very primitive, very simple, basic, living close to the soil kind of an existence, and all of a sudden you're in Star Wars. You know? And the battle cruisers are everywhere, and the lasers and the, and the, uh, the lightsabers are flashing in the, in the spirit realm with good angels fighting Satan's demons and so on. It's kind of a break, okay? But the angel says, John, you know, don't do that. Get up. I can just hear this angel, right? I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We've already talked about this, guys, but the word worship 
is a contraction of the word worth-ship. That's a little hard to say. Um, so we've shortened it to worship. And the idea is only God is worthy of our praise and exaltation. Only God is worthy of our worship because he's God. Look, as powerful and glorious as angels are, and they I can't wait to meet an angel. In fact, well, I, I'm sure that they know me because they're, you know, I'm sure that God's assigned several to me since I need extra help, uh, you know, but um, I can't wait to meet my guys. I'm sure it wasn't Michael and Gabriel. That's probably Clarence and Horatio or something, you know. A couple of low-level grunts that uh, you two guys, you can't do much. Go with that Ballmeyer. He needs a lot of help, all right? Uh, but listen, as powerful and glorious as angels are, they are still created beings. They are still created beings and therefore not worthy of worship, which again belongs only to God. Good angels don't want worship. The bad angels do. Their leader, Lucifer, desperately wants to be worshipped. That's what caused his fall. He wanted to be like the Most High, right? He wasn't happy being number two under the Trinity, the top angel of all of heaven. He wanted to be number one. And it was his pride that caused his fall. And during the tribulation period, he is going to deceive the whole world through the Antichrist and false prophet, the satanic trinity, that he is in fact God. The world's going to worship the dragon, Satan. And of course, the Antichrist, and in some ways, the false prophet. Satan is going to get the very thing he's always longed for, and that is to be worshipped as God. Of course, that glory, well, it's glory to him, not anything we think is glory. To worship the devil is not going to bring Satan glory. It's just going to feed his ego. But um, that won't go on too long before the real king comes back and receives true glory, true honor, true worship, right? Um, but I want you to notice this. This is important. God's angels never receive worship. They're, they're horrified if anyone tries to give them worship because they know that is absolutely forbidden. That any, and they want it that way. They want to worship God alone. They do not want to receive worship. Good angels. This is in contrast with Jesus, who throughout the Gospels we see people worshiping in many places. I'll just give you three examples. The first one, you remember how that in Luke chapter 5, you know, Peter and his brother Andrew and John and his brother James, they had a fishing business. And so they were out all night fishing and they caught nothing. And so they brought their boats into shore and were sitting on their boats washing their nets, which you had to do, right? Otherwise they would rot with different stuff that you'd pick up in the lake, you know, and so on. Uh, see a galley. And so as they're washing their nets, um, Jesus is there wanting to teach, but the crowd is pressing on him to the point where they're almost going to push him off into the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're wanting to get so close to him. So he sees Peter there uh, uh, cleaning his nets and says to Peter, um, can I use your boat uh, basically as, a, as a, a platform? And so he gets into Peter's boat. And Peter rows a few yards off ashore, and there Jesus is sitting because in those days the teachers sat and the students stood. We've gotten that backwards today, okay? So Jesus is sitting in the boat, and he's teaching. After he gets done teaching, he says to Peter, Now, he said, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. I love Peter, right? 
He didn't put it this way, but I think that's what he was thinking from the passage. Now, Jesus, you're the carpenter, I'm the fisherman. And we fishermen know you don't catch fish in the day in the deep water. You catch them at night in the shallow water. But that's what you want me to do at your command. I will let down the net. It's interesting how we limit God. Jesus said, let down your nets for a catch. And Peter limited Jesus' command because of his lack of faith. We do that. So Peter let down the net, and immediately it was so filled with fish, the boat began to sink, and Peter had to call over his buddies, his partners, to help them get this thing back to shore. Well, when it got back to shore, in Luke 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, what had happened, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, he acknowledged that Jesus was no mere man and he worshipped him. Well, of course, you remember the night of the crucifixion. The disciples were in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, fearful, hiding, the door was barricaded, locked, because they were afraid the Roman soldiers were coming for them next. This is now the evening of the crucifixion. At one point, here comes Jesus walking right through the walls, or right through the door, locked door, stands in the midst of his guys and says, you know, peace be unto you. And he appears to them there. And they thought he was a ghost. And he said, have you got any food? And they had, I think, a honeycomb and a piece of fish. And he ate because in that culture they didn't believe spirits could eat. So the fact that Jesus ate proved he was not a ghost. He was the glorified risen Christ. Okay, so they talk for a while. Jesus goes. Thomas wasn't there. And when Thomas finally came back to the upper room, the, the guys told him what had happened and he didn't believe them. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger into the nail prints in his hand and my hand into the spear wound in his side. About a week later, they were in the upper room. Thomas was there. Here comes Jesus. And the Jesus says, Thomas. Go ahead and put your finger in my nail prints. Put your hand in my spear wound. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. To which Thomas responded in John 20, verse 28. He said to the, to the Lord Jesus, My Lord and my God. My, he worshipped him. Give you one more. You remember how that in Matthew 14, after a long day of ministry, up there in the Galilee, Jesus had his guys get into a boat and, and uh, told them to cross the Sea of Galilee while he went up on top of a mountain to pray. And I've been on that mountain. It's the only one that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. I think it's called Mount Arbel. Beautiful view. You can go up there. And um, we believe that's where he was. But while the guys were on the Sea of Galilee rowing, trying to get across, which is about seven and a half miles, okay, um, a storm arose. This was a windstorm, not a rainstorm with clouds and lightning, uh, a very uh, great windstorm. It created a lot of waves and things, and th those are uh, typical in that part of the world for the Sea of Galilee, right? 
And so the guys trying to obey Jesus' command to go across, they fought this thing for eight hours, six to eight hours. They were exhausted. They thought they were goners. Uh, all hope, I think, at this point was gone. They were physically exhausted. Uh, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking to them on the Sea of Gal on the water. They thought again he was a ghost. That's the problem when you watch too many horror movies. No. But again, they thought he was a ghost. And um, Peter said, if it's, if it's really you, Lord, let me step out of the boat and come to you on the water, and Jesus will come. Peter stepped out of the boat. You know the story. Jesus, Peter stepped out of the boat, begins to walk on the water to Jesus. And of course, it didn't take long for reality to sink in. As he begins to think to himself, wait a minute, I'm walking on water. That's impossible. I can't do that. And he begins to look and he sees the waves crashing and all this, you know, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus and immediately begins to sink. He cried a simple prayer, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches out his hand, pulls him up, says to him, why did you doubt? You have little faith. Walks him back to the boat. Immediately, the boat is at the other side. And it says here in Matthew 14, verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, guys, I bring this up because Jesus never at any time when somebody offered him worship, he never said, don't do that. I'm not God. I'm not worthy. He never said, don't worship me. I'm an angel. Worship God. He didn't say that at any time. No, he accepted their worship because he is God. Guys, Jesus is the creator of all things, including the angels. Again, he is not a created being. He is the creator, God incarnate. Turn to John chapter 1. Familiar territory, but let's just touch on a couple of scriptures. John 1, starting with verse 3. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, for those people, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that Jesus was a created being, they have a problem with this. In fact, in their New World Translation, they actually change it, although the Greek does not permit it. In the New World Translation, they have put, all other things were made through him, and without him, nothing, no other thing was made that was made. So they, they, they have to do that because they believe he was created by Jehovah God and then Jesus created everything else. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that through him all things were made. If Jesus made all things, he himself could not have been made is obviously what John is getting at. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, And the word, a title for Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Another classic passage on this subject, Colossians 1, starting with verse 15. 
He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Those are words that relate to angels. There are higher, There is a hierarchy of angels. You have your top guys like Michael and Gabriel, and then you have your lower-level angels and down to probably the what we would think of the grunts in the in the Marines or whatever the guys that you know that just do a lot of the 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 stuff that just has to be done, but not ruling angels. The word archangel uh, is a Greek comes from the Greek word that means ruling. Michael is a ruling angel. He is a higher up. Okay. Uh, but Jesus made all of them, uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things supreme, and in him all things consist. And I'll let you get into our study in Colossians 1 if you want to get into that in detail. But, but guys, I bring all this out because you have groups like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe Jesus is nothing more than an angel. They teach this. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he's really Michael, the archangel. Right? Um, the, uh, did I say the Mormons? I, I meant Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is Michael, the archangel. The Mormons believe he's the brother of Lucifer. Lucifer was an angel. Therefore, Jesus must be an angel. And, and there's probably other groups that try to make Jesus less than what he really is, which is God Almighty. But the Bible is very clear. If you have an open heart and a, a willing mind to know the truth, and you're not coming to the Bible with preconceived uh, ideas, nobody has pumped into your head false doctrine, and now you're coming to the Bible to justify why it's the truth. If you just come as a blank canvas, uh, open to whatever God is saying in his word, there is no way you could come away from reading the Bible where Jesus is not God, uh, you know, from the pages of Scripture. Very clear, right? And one of these ways that we know he's God is that he receives worship. Again, no, no angel, no angel of God receives worship. Jesus receives worship because he's more than an angel. He is Almighty God incarnate. Uh, angels worship him. You have to turn to it, Hebrews 1, verse 6. But when he brings the firstborn, Jesus Christ, into the world, he says, God the Father, let all the angels of God worship him. Now look, at the end of verse 10, the angel declares, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Guys, this means that the true purpose of prophecy is to bear witness, to bear testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But guys, think about it. That is the purpose of the entire Bible. As Jesus said in Psalm 40, verse 7, the volume of the book, it is written of me, written about me. In John 5, 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. Guys, the whole Bible is testifying and pointing to Jesus Christ. Listen, in clear statements, also in type, but especially in prophecy. 
There are roughly 333 prophecies in the Bible concerning his first coming and over 500 prophecies in the Bible concerning his second coming. Truly, the volume of Scripture is all about Jesus. And guys, that would make sense since the theme of the, of the entire Bible is the redemption of fallen mankind. From start to finish, the theme of the Bible is redemption. The redemption of fallen man. Man who blew it in the garden and fell from perfection and from perfect fellowship with God. God loved so much that he eventually sent his son to die for every one of us fallen sinners. That we might be redeemed, saved, and returned to the purpose for which God created us, which was to reign by his side as his bride. But it would make sense that the th because the theme of the entire Bible is the redemption of fallen man and that redemption was made possible by God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ and then dying on the cross in place of sinful mankind. Um, Jesus would be on every page since every page is about redemption. And you can't have redemption without Christ. Man cannot die for himself. Sinners cannot die for sinners. God made that abundantly clear in the Old Testament when he said, The sacrifices you bring to me have to be, to be without spot or blemish. And Peter picked up on that in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says, You know, Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, died for us. We weren't redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood, the incorruptible uh, thing of the precious blood of Jesus Christ who died for every one of us that we might be redeemed, brought back to God, saved, and someday come and reign with him on the earth. Again, verse 10 tells us, guys, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. One author said, and I quote, Some people think that the purpose of prophecy is to open a window on the future. But no, the spirit and essence of prophecy is to bear witness to Jesus. He is the central figure of all scripture and of all history. We are not to focus our attention on future events, but on the one who will bring them to pass. Our focus of worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Yes, absolutely. And once again, guys, the purpose of prophecy, and this is important, okay? The purpose of prophecy isn't to know, listen, what is coming, it's to know who is coming and how soon he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return. Now look, we are living at a time when most churches, now I'm talking about denominational churches, but even evangelical churches. We are living at a time when most churches in the Western world won't go near prophecy. They just, for different reasons. The liberal churches don't think it's real. A lot of the evangelical churches think it's counterproductive to their mission on the earth, which we'll talk about if we have time tonight, otherwise next week. Most churches will not go near prophecy. Somebody was telling us last night at our weekly, um, at our bi-monthly uh, small group, that she had gone to a church, pretty good-sized evangelical church, Good church, don't get me wrong. It was, a, it was a good, solid, evangelical church. And one of the pastors that Sunday morning was teaching uh, out of the Bible 
uh, teaching Revelation chapter 11. Now, if you were here with us studying Revelation chapter 11, you know that at, after the rapture, every single saved person is taken off the earth. That means that God has no witness to give testimony to who he is. So what is he, just at the very beginning of the tribulation period, church is raptured. They're, they're, all believers are gone from the earth. So what does God do? Uh, because he never leaves himself without a witness. He sends two witnesses, right? We believe Moses and Elijah. And they have a tremendous ministry during the first half of the tribulation period. Probably millions get saved. We know 144,000 Jewish converts to Christianity happen. 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes, right? And, and you know this. But the way he approached this passage was completely unprophetic. He tried to drag out of it some twisted, not that the topic was twisted. It was all about, you know, John, take this measuring rod and measure the temple. Well, you know, we're the temple of the living God. I believe it's the literal temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, but okay. You know, we're, we're, this doesn't have to be literal. It could be allegorical temple. Notice how John is given this measuring rod, and he's got to measure the temple and those who belong to it. And then in the outer court, so to speak, you have uh, people outside the temple, and that's really the, the, the state of the entire world. You have people in a relationship with God and those outside a relationship with God. That was how he handled that passage. And of course, that sentiment is true. The whole world is made up of believers and unbelievers. It's not really a revelation. But he completely ignored the prophetic aspect of that passage and probably the entire book of Revelation. And that's because a lot of churches won't go near prophecy. But of the evangelical churches that will touch prophecy and will teach it, often they get it wrong too. What do I mean? They teach prophecy as a window into the future, an informational window into the future, that we would know what is coming. And that is not wrong per se, but it misses the, the greater issue. Prophecy is not just to tell us what is coming. It's to t it tells us what is coming in relationship to who is coming. That's the idea. We see it here for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you just approach prophecy in the Bible as, uh, as good information to help me know what's coming, great, you're doing better than a lot of Christians today, but even you are missing the point. It's not about what is coming, guys. Prophecy is about who is coming and how soon he's going to get here. Look, it. let me just say this. The idea or the knowledge as God begins to unfold these prophecies. He's given us many prophecies concerning Jesus coming again. And as we see these things happening in our world, that should cause me to constantly evaluate my readiness for Jesus' return. Now, don't miss this, all right? It's very important. Something that God's really been laying on my heart about my walk. 
is I see prophecy coming to pass, and we see it almost every night in the news, practically. It should cause us as evangelical Christians to constantly evaluate, am I ready for his return? Very soon, I'm going to see him face to face. Am I ready? Will I rejoice at his coming because I'm ready and I'm living for him? Or will I be ashamed at his appearing? As John said, many Christians will be, 1 John 2, verse 28, be ashamed at his appearing because they're not living for him. And I think that all depends, you know, am I going to be ready or not? I think that all depends on how much I love him. It all goes back to how much we love Jesus, right? I said a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, all Christians love Jesus. Not all Christians are in love with Jesus. Those that are in love with Jesus, wow. They love him so much that they're just totally living for him. They have put him first. They are, you know, not living at the level of the physical. They're living at the level of the spirit. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things you need physically will be given to you. I mean, you see people like this. They're just, they just exude Jesus. I mean, and they're not flashy. They're not in your face. Look at how spiritual I am. They're the most humble people you ever want to meet. I have come to realize that the ones who are always puffing themselves up about how great they are spiritually are the least spiritual. They're the carnal ones. You show me a person that quietly loves Jesus by just living for him, loving others. Um, and I'll show you somebody who really knows the Lord and is deeply spiritual. But Jesus, you know, one of the running arguments or debates in the first century among the Pharisees and scribes and various leaders of Israel. You know, in the law of Moses, there were 613 commandments. So they were always arguing, well, which is the greatest? You know, they, they had these debates. Sometimes they got a little heated about which of the commandments of God were the most, which one was the most important. So they came to Jesus, Rabbi, you know. Uh, what do you say on the issue? He says, the greatest commandment, right? Mark 12, 30, is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. Isn't that wonderful? They didn't have to memorize 613 commandments anymore. Just two. Anything that makes my life a little easier, I'm all for it. I'm not going to know 1613. I, I can memorize those two. And that even comes down to one. The greatest of all commandments is I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And you will know and I will know if that really is becoming a reality by how consumed we are in our love for Jesus and how we live for him. You know, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, verse 21, whatever you truly treasure, you know, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, don't tell me you love me, show me. Okay? I mean, there's a lot of folks that give God lip service. Oh, Lord, you're the best. I love you with all my heart. And they never really spend any time with him. They're not in the Word. They're not coming to church. They're playing golf or whatever. Not that golf is evil. <laughs> we have a golf instructor in the audience. <laughs> golf is great. <laughs> golf is wonderful. It makes a great game. It makes a lousy God. 
We got to remember that. But Jesus said, look, whatever, whatever you truly treasure, whatever you really value in life, well, that's going to control your heart and your life. All right, well, Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. Lord John simply says, now I saw heaven open. Let me stop there. It is only in the book of Revelation that we see the door of heaven open, and it's opened twice. In chapter 4, verse 1, the door is open to allow the raptured church to enter into heaven as God evacuates us off the earth in preparation for his wrath and judgment to be poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. Remember, as Peter tells us, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. There's no reason for us to be on the earth during the tribulation period when God is pouring out his wrath. Now listen, I was on radio years ago and we were talking about um, this topic and a caller called in who was very upset with me. Very upset. Because I said that God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. You know, that we, won't go, we won't go through the tribulation period. And he was like, Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation. He was really mad at me. I said, sir, just hear me out. Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation from the world against the people of God, that's a reality. But the tribulation of God against the world, we're not a part of that. That's the idea, okay? That the rapture is God evacuating his people off the earth in preparation for his judgment being poured out on the Christ rejectors, the rebels. That's the first time we see the door of heaven open. The second time it's open is here in chapter 19, where the door is opened again, but this time to allow the glorified church to exit from heaven. First time it's opened, it's open to accept them entrance into heaven before the tribulation period starts next time it's open seven years later earth time to allow the glorified church to exit <laughs> from heaven seven years later when she returns to the earth with jesus at his second coming i don't know if that helps you at all but we see it here i saw heaven opened guys and we've talked about this. As you study Revelation carefully, the church has been missing from the earth starting in chapter 4, verse 1, which I believe signals the rapture, speaks of the rapture. Now that's before the tribulation period begins, which starts in chapter 6. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture occurs. You can read it. Read verse 1. The language is all about the rapture. The church is gone, and she doesn't appear again in the narrative of Revelation until chapter 19, verse 14, when she appears with her husband, Jesus Christ, coming back from heaven um, to the earth to establish the, his kingdom. I believe this is, listen, another case proving the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. By no means the only case, not the most powerful evidence but i believe it is a, an evidence 
of the fact that the church is not going to be here for the tribulation period. Now, guys, Jesus' return to the earth will be the climax of redemptive history. <laughs> and the answer to the prayer of every Christian who has ever prayed to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, right? I don't have to tell you, because you all watch the news, I don't have to tell you that right now God's will isn't being done on the earth as it is in heaven. Why? Very simply because of man's rebellion. Again, that rebellion started the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago. I don't know if you realize this, but God told Adam and Eve um, what they could do and what they couldn't do. And they only had one prohibition. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, guys, I don't know how big the Garden of Eden was, and I don't know how many fruit-bearing trees it contained. I'm going to go on record and say probably thousands. Thousands. And God gave them one prohibition. You can eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one. And they went ahead, listening to the devil, who took the form of a serpent, who said, look, even the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Man has wanted to be like God, just like Lucifer wanted to be like God, from the Garden of Eden. Man. Do you realize that when man, and I say mankind, Adam and Eve, ate that forbidden fruit, do you realize what it was? It was their declaration of independence from God Almighty. And because man declared his independence from God, in other words, man was going to do whatever he, she wanted to do apart from what God said. Now, that's not including everyone as time progressed, of course. You had the Jewish people that God chose to be his uh, special people and and many of them obeyed God from the heart not all but many but we see that this this declaration of independence has been at the heart of all of man's problems from the very beginning you know when people look at this world and it's gotten pretty bad right when people look at this world unbelievers and they want to blame God and say, well, if God was such a God of love, why is he allowing this to happen? I, I just get so furious. You know, this is not the world God wanted us to live in. This is not the world he created for us. The world he created for us was a perfect world, a perfect environment, which tells us, as sociologists and psychologists say, it's man's environment that corrupts him. We're not born sinners. It's man's environment. Well, man sinned in the perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. It isn't man's environment. It's his heart. We all choose how we're going to exercise the, the desires of our heart. Are we going to obey God or are we going to rebel against God? This world is a product of man's rebellion. And it's getting worse and worse. You know why? Because we're getting closer and closer to Christ's return. And the idea is that as man has, 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 you know, Jesus said that um, the closer we got to his return, evil men will grow worse and worse. It's everything is reaching a crescendo. Man's rebellion is going to reach its ultimate zenith when he worships, worships the ultimate man, fallen man, the Antichrist. 
And then God's going to intervene, bring judgment, and Christ will return and make everything right. But people think, you know, the problem is we have too much God in our society. Wow. You know, man, fallen man looks at what's going on here and doesn't think to admit we were wrong. Uh, maybe cashless bail isn't the way to go. We just keep putting criminals on the street. And they keep working, doing more and more evil. No, the problem is God. Or guns, whatever you want to, you know. We need to have a completely secular society. It's the Christians that are causing all the problems. Okay. Wow. Did you spin that? But that's what we're seeing. We see fallen man getting more resolute in his rebellion, refusing to repent, refusing to see that he's the problem, not his environment, not Christians, not God. It's his heart. And so the Lord is going to come back. He's going to fix it. Why doesn't God, if he's a God of love, why doesn't he fix it? He's going to. Jesus is coming back to fix this mess. And he's given you an opportunity right now to repent and get on the right side here. Because if you continue to rebel against God, continue to go your own way, guess what? You will follow the devil into the place that was created for him and his angels, a place that God never intended for man to, to, to live, right? Hell was created for the devil and his angels, the Bible tells us. But if a person wants to follow the first rebel all the way, he or she will follow Lucifer into the place where he will spend eternity a place called hell. Don't tell me if God was a God of love, you wouldn't send people to hell. He doesn't. People choose to go there of their own free will. So here we have the climax of redemptive history. And again, the answer to the prayer of every Christian who has ever prayed to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Now let me just say this to you guys as we bring this to a close. Don't think that when the millennial kingdom is finally enacted on the earth, <laughs> you're going to have a perfect environment where everyone loves Jesus and wants to do totally what he has commanded. That's not going to be the case. What do you mean? What do you, well, the Bible prophesies that there will still be some rebellion during uh, on the earth during this period of time we call the thousand year reign of Christ the millennial kingdom now hear me out the rebellion will not come from any who have been glorified so everybody in this room is going to receive a glorified body at the rapture we're going to come back with Christ and inhabit his kingdom none of us will ever rebel because we have our glorified bodies none of the people alive when Jesus returns who are believers and have escaped the Antichrist and are allowed to come into the kingdom, they'll have their glorified body. They, they will come into the kingdom uh, as believers and they will be able to marry and have, they won't have their glorified body. They'll be able to marry, have children. Those children will grow up and have children and they will grow up and have children. And during the thousand year reign of Christ, the earth, I believe, is going to be repopulated larger than it is right now because you're going to have 
no harsh climatic areas, no Siberia, no uh, you know um, South Pole and Antarctic and stuff like that. Uh, and there's reasons for that. Go back and listen to our Genesis study. But the Earth is going to become very tropical, and pretty much every place on Earth will be inhabitable. So you're going to have a lot of folks that are going to be born during this millennial kingdom. Now, of course, they're not going to be born redeemed. They're going to be born fallen sinners like we were. Even though Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem visibly, uh, they have to receive him into their heart, just as we had to do to be redeemed, saved, and so on. Not all of them will do that. Listen, though, because Jesus is going to reign, um, their evil heart is going to be kept in check. But not all the time. Not in every situation. Look, the difference between man's rebellion now and mankind's rebellion then during the kingdom age, well, what is going to be the difference? Listen, Jesus will be reigning on the earth visibly then. He is not reigning right now on the earth visibly. And when Jesus reigns on the earth during this millennial kingdom, he is not going to tolerate open rebellion in his kingdom. Uh, let's, let's turn to Psalm 2. Keep your finger in Revelation 19. Psalm 2, verse, verses 8 and 9. Where the Father is saying to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So, if a man was a potter, and he had made something out of the clay, and then he fired it in the kiln, I guess that's what you call it, the oven, and in the oven it picked up at a crack or several cracks, was no longer good, it was damaged. What he would do is he'd take a rod or staff or something and he'd pop it. He'd break it, throw it outside. You've heard of the potter's field. Uh, that's where all the shards of broken pottery went. These fields were worthless. They were really not, you couldn't farm them because there's too many broken shards of pottery. So what did they do in Jesus' day? Um, they took the money that they gave Judas to betray Christ. He brought it back, threw it on the floor of the temple to the priests and all that went out and hung himself hanged himself judas and so they said we can't put the money back in the temple treasuries blood money what do we do with it i know let's buy a potter's field to bury the poor in okay the imagery though would have been very familiar to everybody who understood that culture that if a piece of pottery was worthless, it was good for nothing. The potter popped it, and it just was shattered. The same is going to be true in the kingdom age. If somebody is going to be worthless, what it determines if they're worthless, if they refuse to obey the Lord, if they refuse to live a life that honors Him, at one point He will have had enough, and He will pop them with His scepter of the king, and they'll be removed from the earth. 
they'll have to stand before him at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, but they will be removed from his kingdom. He's not going to tolerate what we see going on today that our leaders tolerate. I was just watching the news yesterday. That's a fun thing to do. About some 16-year-old kid in New York who jumped the turnstile at the subway, and one of the cops was close by, saw him, and said, you have to pay, and the kid went berserk. I mean, 16 years old. He starts beating this cop, and of course, in New York, you can't do anything. Now in New York, not only do you, you can't use certain chokeholds, you can't use this or that, you're pretty much helpless, and if you do something wrong, now they passed a law where you can be sued as a cop. They used to have immunity from that. So who would want to be a cop in New York? I have no idea. But this kid was beating on this cop, who you could see was bigger and stronger, but didn't want to go at him because he was 16. The cop could have knocked him out with one punch, but he was holding back. You could see it. Of course, the kid had a big, long rap sheet, had a loaded gun on him, 16. No cash bail. Brought him in. Within two hours, he's back on the street. Our society is crumbling because we have leaders that are so corrupt and demon-led that they're just, you know, law and order is a thing of the past. When Jesus comes back, it isn't going to be like that. He is not going to tolerate. I'm not saying first time somebody steps out of line, he pops him and takes him off the earth. But he's not going to let, you know, I don't know if there's going to be such a thing as career criminals in the kingdom age. I doubt it. But, you know, if a person has a couple, three chances and they still keep rebelling, pop, you're done. You know, they're gone. Not only will that keep evil out of the kingdom, it will bring fear into the hearts of people that you don't want to, you don't want to go there. That That's what... Our judicial system used to foster was a fear of the consequences of crime. There's no, well, we've taken away the consequences in many of these state, uh, cities. So what is, what is the, there's no fear of the law. There's no fear of God. And now we have lawlessness, anarchy. Revelation 19, verse Talking about the return of Jesus, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of and wrath of Almighty God. God is not shy about judging. Some people have a problem with that. They can't get behind a God that judges sin. Well, that's too bad. That's your problem, not God's. I'm not saying that God, that's God's first choice is to bring judgment. His first choice is to show mercy. Our God's a merciful God who desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He will if he has to. Guys, let me just close with this. The world is getting progressively more and more wicked, rebellious, and violent. As Christians, we are longing for the time when Jesus comes back and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ and Jesus will reign forever and ever. And guys, then and only then will God's will in heaven be truly and completely 
and consistently acted, upon, acted out upon the earth. Again, when Jesus finally reigns upon the earth, he will not allow crime, violence, injustice, or rebellion of any kind against his loss and his reign. He will rule with a rod of iron, and peace and righteousness will fill the earth. You won't have to lock your doors. The Bible says this. Every man, everyone will sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid that somebody's going to come in and rob you or kill you. Because Jesus Christ will be reigning and he will not allow evil, crime, injustice, etc. And because of that, I think we all, more and more now, are echoing what John said in Revelation 22, verse 20. As Jesus said, Surely I am coming quickly. What did John say? Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll pick this up next time, God willing. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope of our Lord Jesus coming in his kingdom. Lord, I can't even believe in my 66 years upon the earth, I've never seen it this bad. I've never seen our nation crumbling before my very eyes. We've gone through turbulent times. We've, we've gone through tumultuous times as a nation, but never anything like this. We seem to be self-destructing. We're not fighting uh, World War I, World War II, Korea. We're fighting a larger enemy, the enemy that is inside. And as one of our founding fathers said, men are going to be controlled in one of two ways, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. And the bayonet really isn't working because people just don't care anymore. Father, have mercy on America. Bring a great revival to your church and a great awakening to our land that will bring millions into the kingdom before it's too late. And Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.